This is Dominic Preziosi. A few weeks ago, Commonweal contributor Massimo Fagioli, a professor of religious studies at Villanova University, wrote on our website that Catholic colleges and universities in the United States have yet to take seriously Pope Francis's repeated calls to engage synodality. He wondered why these centers of intellectual development and social change would not embrace such an opportunity, one he also believes is crucial in getting younger Catholics to care about the future of the Church. His article, headlined Unexcused Absence, generated a lively response, and on this episode, Massimo's here to reflect on the issues he raised. We're also featuring conversations with two other synodal leaders at Catholic universities who have their own take on things, and they'll share their experiences so far. Micah Keel, who's a professor of theology at St. Ambrose University in Iowa, and Amira Orozco, a campus minister at Dominican University in Illinois. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Massimo. Thanks for being with us on the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you. So I want to get to talk about a piece you wrote for us in late January titled Unexcused Absence, in which you raised the question, why aren't colleges more involved in the Synod? What prompted you to take up this topic? It prompted me uh, the fact that I am a Catholic theologian teaching in a department of theology and the studies in a Catholic university. And uh, synodality, it's about involving the whole people of God as much as possible in this moment of ecclesial conversation. And it struck me that the most interesting segment of the Catholic demographics, I mean, college students, were not explicitly directly involved by the bishops in Rome first, and then by the bishops' conferences nationally, with some exceptions, and by local bishops. So I felt on the one side that there was a lack of purposeful involvement coming from the top, but also uh, self-critically from myself and my own colleagues, my own academic circles, there has been not much excitement, to put it this way, for this process. So my attempt was to spark some reaction and to see what was happening, actually. Yeah, in fact, in your piece, you say, well, look, if synodality is going to get young people interested in the church, what will? And I guess, I mean, are you detecting then sort of an increase in interest at this point, or is it still too soon to tell? What if, what's your read? So what I've heard and I've seen in these last seven, eight weeks, I got news of some local initiatives. There has been an acceleration, and I don't know if it was because of uh, the article we published, but in the Vatican, the Bishop Synod sent uh, a message to college students also because of the meeting Pope Francis had with uh, students organized by Loyola Chicago at the end of February. So there has been some more movement, also because the deadline for the collection of all these proposals, I mean, hearing sections, is approaching. So I've grown more optimistic in these last couple of months. It stands my, my surprise that there hasn't been originally since the very beginning, both in the Vatican and the at the USCCB, 
not a more intentional and strategic involvement. And I can understand why, in some sense, because uh, there is historically, in these last 40, 50 years, a lack of mutual trust between theologians on college campuses and the bishops. But I expected that the synodal process was going to be a kind of a truce or a moment to reconnect. And that has happened only up to a point. Mm. You know, you raised the event that was run by Loyola Chicago, and there was another event you attended to in the interim, a gathering at the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities in Washington. And so maybe I could just ask you what your, what your takeaways or how you felt about uh, ha- having viewed the, the event at Loyola, and then also what kind of response you got at the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities in Washington. What was the mood that you took from each of these, these gatherings? So the, the Pope Francis event was interesting because usually Pope Francis is at his best in this kind of, of language or encounter. I was also struck by the absence of what Pope Francis said because he never said anything that is about the future of the church as such. I mean, he talked a lot about immigration, environment, social ills, and this is very important, very necessary, but expecting something more on the changes that we need in the church, on ministry, the role of women, all of that. And this Francis has grown more cautious, and that has been confirmed by what I saw. At the ACCU, it's been interesting. I was a guest because, of course, I'm not a president and not even in, in campus ministry, but what I saw was excitement for this process that has really campus ministers at the center of of the action because most of it is in their hands. But on the other hand, I saw their worries for the future of the involvement of Catholic colleges and universities in the Catholic Church. This is is something that this nodal process is helping us understand. I want to ask you to just, and maybe as a way to wrap up, I mean, your piece, understandably, was focused on the situation among U.S. Catholic colleges. Do you, or are you aware of any kind of differences or similarities between what's happening here in the United States and what might be happening in other countries among young people and college students? So what we know, or I know, is that what's happening in Latin America is different because their synodality as a whole is, is different. And so it's, it is much more part of the DNA of that church since the, the 1960s of the Second Vatican Council. So here, the situation in the U.S. is not particularly worse than in Europe or in Australia. What's different here? is that in the United States, there is a network of Catholic college universities that there isn't anywhere else. So here, if there's something that should happen between synodality and Catholic students in Catholic colleges should happen here. But as a whole, there has been a reluctance also because of the fear of interference of uh, theologians, academics in, in this process, which... I mean, so far has toned down a little the, I mean, the excitement. So there's still time, also because I know that this modality is not something that will be accomplished in 2023. I mean, this is something that should really change 
our way of being church. So this is just a start and it's time to, to catch up, I would say. Thank you, Massimo Facelli, for being with us today. Thank you. Micah Keel is a biblical scholar and professor of theology at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. His response to Massimo's piece, published on the Commonweal website, outlined the ways in which St. Ambrose has actively embraced synodality. And he's here to speak about it with Commonweal assistant editor Griffin Olenek. Micah, thanks so much for being here on the Commonweal podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's fun to be here. So you noted in your letter that some believe that attaching an institution of higher learning to the Catholic Church is a flailing, if not failing, proposition. It's obvious that you disagree. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting if you look at how university, college and university administrators see the church right now. They see declining in t- attendance. They see less engagement among young people. And they wonder, well, is that really where we want to attach ourselves as we think about recruiting students and trying to keep our universities vibrant. And to me, that is the wrong way to think about it, that sort of technocratic view of why we do what we do. We're here to try to create a mission that is something much bigger and deeper than just survival. Obviously, people face real-world challenges that are difficult, but I think we need to make sure we are consistently engaged in the missions and the charisms of our colleges and universities, and let that be the thing that might actually help lead people back to the church rather than something that we shy away from or are somehow afraid of engaging. So you mentioned charism, and I'm wondering, could you tell our listeners a bit about your institution, St. Ambrose? Yeah, I mention it, and then we don't technically have one. St. Ambrose is, is a diocesan school. We were founded by our diocese. And so we're somewhat unique in that we're not started by an order, a, a Benedictine order or a Jesuit school that comes along with a, a charism sort of baked into then what the university is supposed to be about. We've had to create one in our DNA on campus. And for us, this we have a very long, deep tradition going back over 100 years of commitment to social justice and to the Catholic social teachings. And so that's something that we have in our mission and that we are working on constantly as a way to try to uh, make it who we are. But we still have close connections with our diocese. The bishop is still the chair of our board here at our university. I think that presents both sort of some challenges in that we don't have the same kind of depth to draw from in terms of maybe a, a school that's associated with an order. But it also creates an opportunity that it gives us an initial nudge to be connected with the diocese and the local church and forces us in a way to be engaged at that level. Could you talk about how synodality is playing out now at St. Ambrose? So we've had uh, several things happening. We had a a group convened, I think, back in November, where we had uh, our president and our theology department, campus ministry, all involved in planning on uh, what this would look like. Campus ministry has held listening sessions with various different student groups on campus. Our theology department committed to having a listening session in every single theology class. So that means we captured pretty much the entire student body in that. And then our president has been meeting with other groups on campus, particularly those that maybe haven't traditionally found themselves at the table amongst the voices in the church. So 
She's meeting with our PRISM group, which is a, means promoting respect in sexual minorities. She's meeting with the Black Student Union. She's meeting, I, I think, with both the college Republicans and Democrats and just trying to engage every part of campus that she can. You know, it can be a little bit awkward, particularly I'm in a theology class. Not, not only people who are not Catholic, I have students who are atheists. I have students who are from non-Christian traditions. And what I said to them, I said, well, we understand this is a little bit awkward, but we think that because you are part of our university, you are, even in the very broadest sense, a voice at the table within the church. And so we really did not close off any conversation or anybody from the table if they wanted to have a, a voice, because everybody has some sense or experience of the church, whatever their background might be. So the questions, we, we only ask two questions. What fills your heart about the church and what breaks your heart about the church? Could you talk a bit about some of the responses to those questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it's really amazing to hear students talk so aspirationally about what fills their heart, right? They talk about community. They talk about love. They talk about acceptance. But at the same time, it's often when it's the things that break their heart, it's those very things that are missing. So I was struck by the congruity there, or maybe the incongruity is a better word, in which the people who have their heart broken in certain ways, it's often not tied up with some specific thing the church teaches, although sometimes that's the case. But it's often more just about tone and about love and about really kind of foundational concepts of what it should mean to be a Christian that a lot of people are, are not, not experiencing. Could you speak also about the world beyond campus? And you mentioned that there are other stakeholders in the process, the local diocese, the broader community. How have these questions been received? What kind of responses have you gotten? And what sorts of initiatives are on the horizon at St. Ambrose? Yeah, so we have, our diocese has been very proactive. Churches are holding listening sessions. I've not been to one at my parish yet. It's upcoming, but I'm, I'm excited and really interesting to see how that's going to go. We're also doing a thing called that they're calling 58,000 cups of coffee, where it's a lot of coffee. Yeah. The idea is if every parishioner in the diocese has coffee with three people, that would add up to 50,000 cups of coffee. And so they're encouraging these conversations, not only at the official listening sessions, but the idea is there might be people who don't want to set foot in the church for a listening session. And so if there's somebody who has a history with the church who hasn't been there in decades or in years, just go listen to them over a cup of coffee. And so that initiative is just getting started. And I, I think it's really exciting as a way of encouraging people to reach out and not in a way that's heavy handed or sort of, we're going to, we're going to present you with clear doctrine so that you'll come back, but no, just be present to somebody and listen to their story. That, that's what I've been impressed with too. in the, the conversations on campus is where in our world today do people really listen? So not much of it going on. And it, in, when you do it, it is, it's really a, a beautiful transformational thing. One example that immediately comes to mind is when I, after I graduated from college, I spent a year as a volunteer in Central America. I was at 
teacher at a small Catholic high school in the western part of the country of Belize, right on the border with Guatemala. And, you know, I was the ignorant 22-year-old and I was down there to, I don't even know really why I was down there, but I had this one student and she was, I was coaching the, the girls softball team and she was the star shortstop and she was in my math class and all of a sudden she just stopped coming to school. And I didn't know why. And I was really frustrated with her. And I had these high expectations for her. And some of those were probably tied up with my own ambitions and ego for the softball team we've been working with. Anyway, I'll never forget that she, she finally came one day after school into the teacher's lounge. And she just said, I need you to listen to me. And she walked me through everything that was going on in her life. And I just thought, oh my God, Micah, you had no idea that any of this was happening. And it was an important lesson to learn because everybody's got a story. Everybody is coming to something with a different set of experiences. And I I think that this is something that Pope Francis feels very intuitively. I think he's lived that. And I think he wants... Catholics to start to think that way, because I think a lot of people view that your path to church, just this, there's this one sort of narrow way. And really, the church is a much broader umbrella than that of ways and reasons why people seek out an experience of God. Well, as this listening continues and the synodal process moves forward, I'm wondering if you could tell us, are you optimistic about both what's happening in your local community at St. Ambrose and in the broader church? When we started this process, I was skeptical. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to get together. We're going to talk and we're going to send all this stuff up the chain and it's, and nothing's going to happen. And a couple of my colleagues got in my face about that. And they were like, Micah, that's too cynical. But also really what changed my mind was doing it. And I realized that I, I should have known this ahead of time, but it really has nothing to do with where this goes. It has to do with what happens in that room. And that experience of listening and sharing, because that's really where, where the magic happens in, in a certain sort of way. And I, as a, I'm a scripture scholar, so I've been reflecting on all of the things that happen in scripture on the way, co-walking in a caravan, in a journey. And it's in, in those moments, it's never something that then gets codified and sent up the chain, right? It's always in the moment. It's always, it happens at that time that the change actually happens. And so uh, I, I think a good understanding of the synod would not sit back now and hope for, okay, well, I hope those things we said have some impact in Rome. That's, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. It should have changed the people in the room. And then you've actually done something regardless of what happens from here moving forward. That makes me super hopeful because I think those conversations are changing and having an impact on, on what people think. That's very well said, Micah. Thanks so much for being here on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. We'll be right back with more of our conversation. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey 
discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theology Franciscan Theology degree. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. Amira Orozco is a campus minister at Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois. She recently completed a Master's of Theological Studies from the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. In addition to her work with Ministry En Lo Cotidiano at Dominican, she also leads training sessions in synodality and Hispanic ministry throughout the United States. She's here to speak about it with Commonweal Assistant Editor Regina Munch. Mira, tell us how you're involved in the Synod this year. So I am involved in it in a few ways. The first, though, and one of the bigger ways has been through um, a training process that I've been with pastoral leaders really across the country. But I specifically have mostly been focusing on Spanish-speaking pastoral leaders across the country. And essentially what we do is we train them on a curriculum and then a strategic plan to carry out the Synod in their own local communities. And I've done that with a few dioceses, including the Diocese of Chicago, where I am now, and then as well the Diocese of Trenton in New Jersey training, I can't remember how many exactly right now, but hundreds of, of Hispanic pastoral leaders on how to do the Synod in their own communities. What happens in those training sessions? How do you train for synodality? Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't write the curriculum, but the curriculum uh, essentially goes through first, what is the Synod? Why is the Synod important? And with the Hispanic pastoral leader, pastoral leader, something that's actually really interesting about what we do different than the English pastoral leaders is that we actually include the encuentros, the national encuentros, uh, which happened uh, in the 1970s and 80s, mostly as well um, as 2018. And we include those as a sort of reminder that synodality has happened in the United States through Spanish-speaking populations. And so we take them through that sort of history of synodality, and then we take them through um, a little bit of an examine to prepare them for this prayerful moment of the synod. And then we actually run a listening session with them. And then when they come back into the bigger room, we run what we call like a strategic planning conversation about how they should go about carrying out the synod in their own local communities. You're also a campus minister at Dominican University outside of Chicago. What's the work you're doing on synodality that's happening on campus? Yeah, so my work at Dominican has been uh, really I think interesting because it has been exclusively with young people, obviously. Dominican University uh, is a Hispanic serving institution, and I'm a coordinator for a program called Ministry No Cotidiano there. And so, really, we've t- carried out the Senate in two ways. One, through the program Ministry No Cotidiano, we meet with the students once a week in what we call theological reflection. And as a part of that theological reflection, what we've chosen to focus on this semester, part of our theme is community. And so we first brought in with me and my co-coordinator, Krista Chinchiapatsky, we first brought Pope Francis and explained sort of his vision of synodality. And then we've gone through a lot of theologians and a lot of Latina, but the peoples to remind students they're a part of this larger community that's bigger than themselves. And I think that's really what Pope Francis is calling us to in the synod, right? He's calling us towards being in communion with one another in community. And at the end of each session, ask the students, what has been a joy, what has been an obstacle, what is, where have they seen this person's vision sort of carried out in the church in good ways, and where have they seen it not necessarily carried out very well? 
And the second thing has been with a sort of more general student population, what we call a spiritual conversation. And so with that, we partnered with the Diocese of Chicago in the Consejo Spanol to carry out a spiritual conversation on campus. And through that, I had a planning committee of seven students who helped me carry that out. And I thought it was really fun because what we did was we got together and we had dinner with the actual spiritual conversation. We had dinner and talked about joys and obstacles in the church. And then before that, the planning committee, we went through the actual planning document of the Senate because my students aren't necessarily super familiar with what the Senate is. And we're able to go through the synodal preparatory document and just reflect on what, what synodality means to them and why they think it's important and why they think it's historic in this moment. You mentioned roadblocks that come up. What prevents synodality from happening? Yeah, so I think universities generally have a lot of difficulty around, I think, gathering students just to talk. I think there's a lot of fear around what synodality could mean for the sort of structure of the church. And I think a lot of times synodality is played as this like chaotic, there's going to be this like crisis where students are going to start yelling at people or, and then no one's ever vocalized this to me, but it's a sort of sensation I get or feeling I get around that the sort of chaotic side of things is really going to come out. And the truth is that the, the synod isn't that right. And that the, the spiritual conversations that, the Pope, that Pope Francis has called us to engage in are at pretty dialogue based, right? And based on a lot of coming together in really mutual respect. And I think a lot of the roadblocks in my experiences at a university have been around that fear, around what could a student say? What could a student do? And also, I think just like the, the fear around not getting it perfect, right? Doing something wrong and not doing it correctly, and then therefore being sought out by students as not doing it correctly. Could you tell us about the, the challenges of working with a population at Dominican, at Hispanic serving institution? What could the church learn from an institution like Dominican? Yeah, so I don't think there's as many challenges about working with such a population as it's it, it, like there's as many joys, I think. And there's a lot of like really possibility there, which I think is the well, this part of your question is, is I think the Dominican University is a Hispanic serving institution. And so why it was really important for me to make sure that even though I don't think we did it perfectly, and I, I continue to think we, we're not doing it perfectly, and that there's a lot of work that needs to be done around these, around the, the concept of synodality at Dominican, I think. Part of why I'm very uh, passionate about making sure that it's done is because we're a Hispanic serving institution and really young Latina peoples in the Catholic Church exist at universities, right? They no longer exist at parishes. Uh, I was just commenting to a friend the other day, like, I find it very fulfilling to go to Spanish mass. But one of the things I get really sad about is like in most Hispanic serving, most Spanish speaking masses and uh, Hispanic parishes, there's very few young people. And if they're there, they're with their families, right? And so where are you finding Latina young peoples? You're finding them at universities, right? As more and more Latina people go to, to universities, that's really going to be where the Catholic Church needs to position itself in order to get the perspective of these folks, right? And so I feel really honored to be at a Hispanic-serving institution where I have a captive audience of young Latina peoples quite a lot, right? And so I feel like I'm speaking to people, and I myself am obviously a young Latina, but I get to be in this in this population of students who are a little bit younger than I am and getting to learn from them, right? And getting to see what is it about the church that's so difficult for them to be in, right? And what is it about the church that no longer speaks to their experiences, which I think is a really powerful and I feel really blessed. I feel like it's a gift. 
one of the things that came up a lot in our planning session were, was the perspective of my students around the parish life and the fact that the, the parish is often not a place where they feel empowered and that it's often a place where they don't use this word, but I would use this word clericalism really comes out really strongly, right? And the church for them is really centered on the parish. And when the parish is not a place where they feel welcomed, all of a sudden they they equate that to being in church, right? And so a lot of the work that I've done with my students around these spiritual conversations is engaging them in the fact that they too are church, right? And that the, the table we're sitting around, the seven of them plus me, are church and we're all laity, but we are an experience of church that is important and it's important to remind them of that. Even though people have tried to make them feel like only the parish is where they can experience church, church is much bigger than that. And that now is their time to take up their spot in that. And now their time to take up their place in this larger body of Christ. Do you think young Latina people will engage with the Synod? I think I'm hopeful about it in some ways and in other ways I'm not. In my experience of both Hispanic pastoral leaders uh, and by my young, younger Hispanic students, I think there's a lot of skepticism around whether or not this is actually going to lead to anything on their behalf. And I think that's partly because they have seen it time and time again that the church doesn't actually act on a lot of the things that they are asked about. And then I think, and just to give like a very small example is, uh, often I heard the the pastoral leaders talk about what if my parish priest doesn't want to do this, right? What happens if my parish priest doesn't want to do this? And it, it's, I think that sort of skepticism around like the church doesn't actually want this to happen. This is something Pope Francis is making people do or inviting people to do, but it's not actually something that the local parish wants to happen. But then on the other hand, I think I'm hopeful in the sense that I think that I see in a lot of people a sort of consciousness raising moment around this is my church too, and I am church too, right? And so how the synod can allow us to become parts of a bigger whole and understand ourselves as parts of a bigger whole, I think, could be a powerful cultural change. I just don't know if the doctrinal change will be there, and that might be something that a lot of people are searching for. Amira, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can read more about the Synod on Synodality on our website, with articles from Austin Ivory, Massimo Fagioli, Micah Keel, Amir Orozco, and more. For the Commonweal Podcast, I'm Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff, in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.